I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. Professor Gunter 
played uh, this late 80s film called The Mission in class. And this film is set in South America in the 18th century, and it portrays a group of Spanish Jesuits who go into the Paraguayan, Paraguayan, Paraguayan rainforest to convert the local Guarani people. One of the Jesuits in this film is a recent convert himself who goes on this mission as penance for his own sins in the story. The drama is that he killed his own brother because of this romance with this woman they both loved. The mission is a miraculous success in this movie. It, it's painted, they paint this idyllic picture of Catholic teaching blended with indigenous culture, but, dun dun dun, a sinister treaty signed in Europe all of a sudden transfers sovereignty of the territory in Paraguay from, Span from Spain to, Portu um, to Portugal. So from the Spanish people to the Portuguese hands, um, suddenly the mission is now in danger. And unlike Spain, Portugal has no law against slavery. So there's nothing to stop the Portuguese from these Portuguese plantation owners from descending upon their mission now and enslaving this entire population in Paraguay. The Jesuits are divided on how to respond. Some train the local people to take up the sword. Others simply walk into the attackers straight on, holding like the chalice as they walk towards their attackers. The ruthless Portuguese slaughter both groups with equal vigor. And the film ends with local children rescuing the precious relics from the mission and carrying them deeper into the jungle. And I'll never forget, as they carry these relics into the jungle, the words of John's gospel appear on the screen. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. After we watch the film together as a class, my classmate looks at me and says, did you like it? I said, it's, it's, it's beautiful, it's affecting and tragic, but I thought as a religious film, it left a lot to be desired. Oh, she said, huh, I never thought of it as a religious film. There I was thinking it was all about sin and evangelism and mission and the sacraments and Christian nonviolence. And then there she was sitting next to me in that class thinking it was about colonialism and slavery and populist struggles and injustice. I thought she was ridiculous. It was obviously a film about the endurance of Christianity. And she thought I was ridiculous because it was obviously a film about colonialism. And in truth, we were both right. We have made our way this series through a variety of words defining our terms. And today we come to this word Bible-based. And I want to suggest that reading the Bible, what it means to be Bible-based is a lot like watching that film. And to show you how it's a lot like this film, I figured we together would work through a story we all know pretty well. I thought we could think through the story, the opening verses of the book of Exodus. You know it, once, you, once I remind you of it, you'll know. 
and see what happens to us as we chew on this story. I did not have Christian read this story as our scripture today, but we're going to look at the broader picture of scripture from the lens of this particular story. And so in summary, the beginning of the book of Exodus, this is what happens. You'll, you'll be reminded and you'll go, oh yeah, that's right. Beginning of the book of Exodus, Pharaoh sets his heart against the Hebrew people and makes them slaves. They are now slaves in Egypt. Getting increasingly nervous, he intends to kill all the Hebrew males at birth. Recognize this story? Thwarted by, thwarted by local midwives, he orders his people to throw every single baby Hebrew boy into the Nile. And one Hebrew woman floats her son down the river in a papyrus basket. And Pharaoh's own daughter spots the baby, adopts him, and hires his real mother to be that baby's nurse. And she calls the child... Moses, thank you, good people. And she calls the child Moses. So think about this story for a second. Think about this story. Think about what is happening here in this story. Life coming up out of the chaos of the waters. It's like a new creation story. Or it's like a little boat floating on a dangerous piece of water containing the destiny of God's promises. It's like a new Noah's Ark story. Or it's one human being through whom God plans the blessing and deliverance of an entire people. It's a new Abraham story. So already, just halfway through chapter 2, Exodus has woven together already the themes of the entire book of Exodus, or the entire book of Genesis, the beginning, the new beginning after the fall, and the beginning of Israel in this one story. We're about to witness the fourth beginning. We've gathered for the breaking of the waters. We've come to see a birth. And notice how this story come, becomes a microcosm of the story of Exodus as in a whole as well. Moses and his mother are dangerous dwellers now in this palace of Pharaoh, just as the Hebrews are a threatening presence in the land of Egypt. Moses is set among the reeds. Later, he leads his people through the sea of reeds called the Red Sea. Moses comes out, up out of the water just as the children of Israel will later come up out of those parted Red Sea waters. Moses's unnamed Egyptian sister plays a vital role in this watery rescue of his just as Moses' Hebrew sister, Miriam, will play a vital role in the crossing of the Red Sea. The midwives in, in, of the Hebrew boys' deliverance anticipate the way that Moses one day will become like a midwife himself of God's deliverance for Israel. And then look at how many themes of this story reappear in the story of Jesus. King Herod becomes the latter-day pharaoh, seeking to destroy every young boy in Bethlehem. Ever think about that connection? Jesus' rescue involves Egyptians, those wise men of the East, just like the Hebrews' rescue involves Egypt, had to happen with Egypt involved. 
Jesus goes down into the place of death and emerges miraculously as the first of many to find new life. Moses, the first of many a people to find new life. This is how we read the Bible, or this is how we should read the Bible. This is good Bible reading, what we just did. That's good Bible reading. This is what it means to be Bible-based. Noticing layer after layer after layer and repetition and correspondence and added significance and deeper dimensions, the closer you get to the story, the more you see, the richer the resonance of every phrase of that story. And then because of it, you become practiced at discerning God's hand at work in that scripture, in all scripture. And how do you learn to do this? Think carefully for a second what you have to do when you read a Bible. Matt Binsky brings his Bible to church. Matt, pick up your Bible. <laughs> open it. Look at Matt. Matt has to use both hands to open his Bible. You don't normally hold a Bible, open a Bible with one hand. That's very difficult. Very difficult. Think carefully for a second about how you might hold a Bible. When you open a Bible, you always hold it with two hands. And when you hold it in two hands, it's always offering you, um, giving giving you something about God. And in, in holding it to, in two hands, you have in your left hand the Old Testament, and you have in your right hand the New Testament as you hold it. If reading the Bible with two hands, Christians then read the New Testament in light of the Old Testament and the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. This is good Bible reading, y'all. If you're left hand, you should carry Israel. God's chosen people, and in your right hand, you should carry the church when you read the Bible. Christians never read the Bible alone then, ever. We should never read the Bible alone. They always read the Bible through the eyes of the Jews and with the company of the church. That's the purpose. That's how we read the Bible. This is what it means to be Bible-based. But reading the Bible is only half of the story. Doesn't matter if you've got the Bible in your hand and you're holding it with two hands and you're reading the new in light of the old and the old in light of the new. Doesn't matter if you notice layer upon layer and repetition upon repetition. This is only part of the story. It takes time and practice and patience and care, but it's the easy part of engaging with the Bible. That's all the easy part. To various degrees and depth, the easy part is what most churches mean when they use this word Bible-based when they call themselves Bible-based, namely that we believe in the words of Scripture, the old and the new, and we apply Scripture to the way we live, and we see the world through this book. This is what it means to read the Bible, but this is the easy part, and most churches get stuck in that, in the easy part. Paul, in our Thessalonians passage today, says this. This is the easy part, y'all. The human word, as he calls it. But you have become masters at not just accepting the human word, but that it is the word of God at work in you who, who believe. The easy part is just reading the Bible, noticing the, you know, doing the English major work, noticing all the repetition and the significance and the metaphors. That's the easy work. But the, the hard part, the difficult part, is letting the Bible read you. What on earth could that mean, letting the Bible read you? Let's go back to the conversation I had with my classmate six years ago after watching the movie The Mission. We both thought carefully about that film. I thought it was about evangelism and the enduring mission of the church. 
and she thought it was about colonialism. And earlier I said we were both right. In fact, we were both wrong. Why? Because we both pondered the plight of those wonderful Jesuits. One, by the way, who was played by Robert De Niro, a very young Robert De Niro. <laughs> we both pondered the plight of those Jesuits and how they should respond to the ruthless Portuguese. In other words, we both just read the story. But neither of us let the story read us. If we had, we would have realized that in this story, we, two educated Westerner, Westerners sitting in a Duke Divinity classroom, we weren't the Jesuits. We weren't the Spaniards either. And we certainly were not the local people in this story. We were the Portuguese. We were the exploiters. A predominantly white university, the people who drive the buses, the people who clean after we are long gone in the day, look nothing like us. We were the slaveholders, we were the invaders, we were the ruthless murderers. And we saw merely the human word, but between the lines was the word ready to read us, ready to work in those who believe. If you read between the lines of the movie, you will see that the 20th and 21st century rape of the rainforest in the same region of South America has been far more damaging and far reaching than the actions of the 18th century Portuguese. Then what seems to be first a sad and poignant and beautiful film that leaves us moved and touched. You know, the light shines in the darkness, y'all turns into an uncompromising, devastating exposure of ourselves. We are now vulnerable and raw. Exposure of the West, making the rest of the world pay for us to maintain our comfortable lifestyles. And then we Westerners finish the film angry now, angry and defensive searching for excuses and wishing we'd never been made to feel so uncomfortable and guilty about this film. We are the Portuguese. Ouch. That's what happens if we allow the film to read us, not just have the human word, but the word of God at work in us who believe. So now let's go back to the Exodus story. You're like, oh no. <laughs> When Western Christians read the story of the Exodus, of course we identify with the Hebrews. We've known hardship, we've known oppression, we've known despair, and God hears our cries and sees our distress and rages against injustice and sets us free. Sure, there's bound to be a few Egyptian casualties, but this is a story of God meeting us in our experience of slavery and parting the Red Sea to give us freedom and joy that's what it's like to read this story, to read the Bible. But what would it mean for us to let the story read us? By this time, I trust you are beginning to feel a little angry and defensive. <laughs> I trust you are beginning to feel that sense, that knot in your stomach, and the fury of seeing something you thought belonged to you carried off by the bailiff or the burglar, right? I'm not surprised if you feel that, because that's what it feels like to let the Bible read you. That's what it should feel like. 
to let the Bible read you. When we let the story of the Exodus read us, we realize to our horror and dismay that in this story, we are not the innocent Hebrews. We are the Egyptians. Notice what Pharaoh says in the part of the story we read today, what we're wrestling with. He says um, something like, Egypt is crawling with immigrants. There's too many of them. If we're not careful, they're out, they'll outnumber us. They're un-Egyptian. They have too many children. They're at fault for everything that's wrong around here. Wait. That's the kind of thing we say. Pharaoh believes he's rich and powerful because he's worked so hard for all he has. And he thinks, I'm not going to let the weak and the immigrant or the underclass take any of my entitlement away. Wait. That's the kind of thing we think in our minds. Pharaoh makes up a story, a story of fear and mistrust and suspicion, and he says, they might outnumber us. There might be a war. They might fight with our enemies. They might run away. Wait, that's the kind of story we make up. And then we run to politicians and all po of all kinds of parties, right, who stoke our fears and play on our mistrust. And that's what we begin to discover when we let this story begin to read us. So you can see why we don't do it, right? You can see why we never get there. We never get to the part of letting the story read us, why churches of all shapes and sizes don't do it. You can see why we like our Bible, we like our story wrapped in this pious cocoon. You can see how every abuse and misinterpretation and cherry picking of scripture from the very beginning to now stems from an avoidance to let the Bible read us by us just reading the Bible. You can see why we like our Bible pious and feel good. And not many of us are actually slaves or suffer under merciless taskmasters. So we spiritualize this story. This is what we've learned to do. We spiritualize this story and we say it's really about deliverance from fear or temptation or loneliness or illness. And don't get me wrong, this spiritual, the, the spiritualizing is fine. It's real and it's important and there is metaphor and there is beauty in that, but put yourself in Paraguay right now and see what it looks like when we Western Christians watch the mission and it doesn't occur to us that we're the Portuguese. And put yourself on the Gaza Strip right now and see what it looks like that we Western Christians are reading the Exodus story and it doesn't occur to us for one moment that we could be the enslaving Egyptians, that we're the oppressive Pharaoh. And of course, we don't want to read the story that way because it makes us feel miserable and unhappy and wrong, and we quite happily tip our hats to the importance of reading our Bibles until we finally come across someone whose experience does look like that, like that of a Hebrew slave, and who says to us, I'm glad you've put stock in reading your Bible, but have you ever allowed your Bible to read you? On the face of it, this is terrible news, all of this then. Well, then why would I read my Bible? It's just going to make me feel horrible all the time. We read the Bible and we're inspired and liberated, and then we let the Bible read us and we're exposed and full of guilt. Maybe that's not a bad thing for some of us, right? Maybe it's 
gives us a taste of how the Bible has been misused and abused to make people of all kinds feel exposed and guilty and judged and raw and wounded, right? But wait one more minute. When we open the Bible, it's not just an inactive prayer that God will open our hearts. It's also a prayer that the Holy Spirit might tell us something we didn't already know, may show us someone we've never taken notice of before, may show us what we need to, to live penitent, renewed lives as forgiven sinners. So let's now read that story one more time. Sober and humbled as we are, <laughs> as it's left us, it turns out that we're the Egyptians in this story, and we're feeling pretty sore about it right now. Here's the surprising good news, though. The Egyptians that we are, there's more than one way to be an Egyptian in this story. Look at Pharaoh's daughter. She's got privilege. She benefits from the policies of her father, the oppressor. He's her dad. But in her own flawed, beautiful way, she imitates God. And she sees the child in the basket, and she hears the cry of this infant in peril. Pharaoh's daughter incubates the exodus. She's an Egyptian, sure, yeah, but she can still be on the side of the kingdom. That's the good news. That's how you take just reading the Bible to allowing it to read you and then still finding redemption in it. She can still be on the side of the kingdom, and maybe so can we. Could you incubate the exodus? Could you be an Egyptian on the side of the kingdom? I think that's the call of Americans. And look at the midwives in this story. It's not clear if they are Egyptians or Hebrews. We don't really know. But they fear God, and they refuse to carry out the orders of Pharaoh. Going against Pharaoh's instructions, they insist on letting the boys live anyways. It's been called, actually, the first recorded act of civil disobedience in world literature. The midwives have been Egyptians, but they found a way to subvert the oppression. And they were, they were ordered to be a part of it, but they didn't. Maybe, maybe there's place in that for us, too. This is the pivotal story in the Old Testament, the template on, onto which the early church imprinted the death and resurrection of Jesus. Read it and enjoy it for all of its various dimensions. And then if you dare, let it and every passage you read read you. And repent as you read. Repent as you read. Letting the Bible read you letting it work in you, the believer, and finding humility and hope. Read this story and every story one more time and let it show you how to be that kind of subversive Christian in the Egyptian culture. What is that like? That's what we are. Let it reveal how to, to hear the cry of those who are still oppressed. Let it form you and teach you how to incubate deliverance for those around you let it demonstrate how to fear God until at Kingstown we can say we are Bible-based and we mean that we have let the Bible read us. 
that it is no longer a human word, but it is indeed the work of God in us who believe. Would you pray with me? God, we put out our hands. Join me in this. We, we open our hands up and we hold our metaphorical Bible and we feel its weight and we know the story of old or we, we want to know it, we don't. And, and we know the story of new and we like to hang on the words of Jesus. We like Jesus. Um, and, and we're learning how to read one in light of the other. And um, as long as it's sitting in our hands like this and we're reading one in light of the other and reading the word, it's, um, it stays pretty distant from us. We can, we can read it, and it never, has to, it never has to convict us. We've learned how to explain away various pieces of scripture that seem too judgmental. And so then we just read it. God, make us be people. When we say we are Bible-based, we, we have allowed scripture to read us. And not just scripture, we've allowed community to read us. We have allowed our morning prayer to read us. We've allowed the songs we sing and worship here to read us. So that you may be at work in us who believe. Not of our human understanding, but of something deeper. God, thank you for these stories. These We treasure them. And we pray that prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Oh